Hey, so welcome to week three of this series that we've called Last Place, where we've been learning through this section uh, of the biographical account of Jesus written by a guy named Matthew, that the ranking system based on the value system of our society is actually very different in many ways from the ranking system according to the value system of the society that Jesus has been establishing known as the kingdom of God. And there's uh, no difference. We're going to look at that same idea today. So if you brought a Bible along, uh, turn with me in your Bible or your Bible app to uh, Matthew chapter 19, where we're going to begin today in verse 16, where it says this. It says, just then a man came up to Jesus. So once again, what we've got here is someone initiating a conversation with Jesus. And uh, it says here so far that he's a man. Uh, which is good to know. Uh, the, the text actually gives us some more information. It says that he's a young man, so literally probably between the ages of 20 or 40-ish. I fall outside of that category. Uh, we know that in some of the other biographical accounts of Jesus that retell this story as well, um, that he's a ruler of sorts, probably a synagogue official, like kind of an official uh, religious leader of, of sorts. And we know from this passage later on that this man was rich. He's known in Christian circles as the rich young ruler. And in this text, it tells us only later on that he had wealth. But I'm sure that if you can picture in Jesus' day, Matthew's retelling of this story, it was probably obvious right from the get-go, from either the perfume or the oils that he exuded or the way that he dressed or, you know, how he, how he kept himself. It was probably obvious that, that the guy had money. And so this rich young ruler uh, is the person today who's approaching Jesus and uh, it says in Matthew 19 that he asks him a question. Verse 16 continues. He asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now listen, everything about the punch of this entire passage depends on us understanding what Jesus and this rich young ruler and all of his hearers and Matthew assumed Jesus' response was supposed to be to this question. Everything about the punch of this passage requires us understanding what was assumed to be the answer to this question. Because it's kind of an honest question. It's not that this rich young ruler is trying to trick or manipulate Jesus. In fact, he introduces uh, the conversation by addressing Jesus as teacher. That's a sign of respect. He's not playing games with him. He just asks what he has to do to inherit or to get this eternal life, this life after this life. And, and, you know, I'm sure many of us have asked that ourselves. What happens, you know, 10 seconds after you die? And what does it take to kind of experience life after, uh, everlasting, everlasting afterwards? And uh, so this guy's kind of asking an honest question, expecting an honest answer. At least sort of. Sort of. Because there was a certain answer that this rich young ruler was expecting, but we need to understand how first century people, and especially first century religious people, kind of understood things. See, in Jesus' day, people were still very familiar, very versed in, you know, the Jewish culture and the uh, Old Testament of the Bible, particularly passages like Deuteronomy chapter 28. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, there are promises of God. I'm going to read through them. They're quite exhaustive, but I want us to familiarize ourselves with them today because this was relevant in this, uh, in this setting, in this story. I'm not going to explain them. I hope that they're pretty self-explanatory. So it says in Deuteronomy 28 this, 
uh, Moses is writing this and he says, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord, will God, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. And all these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Then he lists a whole bunch of blessings, including these. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he's giving you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your ground. In the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, the Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top and never at the bottom. I hope you, you can get the idea of passages like this that contain the Old Testament promises of God that were familiar and were relevant and were understood in Jesus' day because what they believed was that especially religiously committed people who were in a position of affluence, they believed that that affluence was the fulfillment of that promise. They believed that someone's wealth or financial affluence was the product of God blessing their faithful obedience. And so, when this rich young ruler asks Jesus what he has to do to get eternal life, what was he expecting Jesus to say? He was expecting Jesus to say nothing. There's nothing you have to do because clearly based on your affluence, you are already fully blessed by God. And since you're already fully blessed by God in this life, there's absolutely nothing that you need to do to prepare yourself for the next life because already it is obvious that God is fully blessing you. See, the rich young ruler was kind of asking a rhetorical question. He wasn't expecting Jesus to give him an answer. He was expecting Jesus to say, there's actually, actually nothing that you need to do. Which is why Jesus' response was so shocking to this rich young ruler. Verse 17, Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. He says, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Interesting that Jesus doesn't talk about entering eternal life. He talks about entering life, meaning the right here and right now uh, kind of experience of life. And to do that, he tells him to keep the commandments, which it's not so much what Jesus said as an answer to this guy, so much as the fact that he said he needed to do something. That was the shocking kind of response of Jesus because this person expected Jesus saying, there's nothing you need to do. But Jesus says, oh, actually, there is something you need to do. You need to keep the commandments. And you can hear the surprise in the rich young ruler's voice in uh, Matthew 19, verse 18, where he says, um, which ones, he inquired. Which ones? If you understand the uh, Greek language for the term which ones, it actually in our language means what the? Because he's kind of shocked and, and, you know, surprised by Jesus' response. He wasn't expecting him to say that he actually had to do something. And so Jesus continues to tease this out in verse 18. It says, Jesus replied, well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. 
and love your neighbor as yourself. Basically, Jesus gives a pretty standard answer here. He whistles off the back five of the Ten Commandments, as well as an additional commandment that later on in the uh, Gospel of Matthew, Matthew would record Jesus as describing as the greatest commandment. So in a sense, he's kind of summarizing what a, a life of devotion and faithfulness to God, you know, really requires, which again has got this rich young ruler so kind of shocked and surprised because in verse 20, he says, you know, all these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? All these I've kept, what do I still lack? He's not being arrogant. He, he's being Accurate. This is a faithful, religiously active person who, in his entire upbringing, remember Deuteronomy 28, is assuming that God has blessed and affirmed his faithfulness and obedience because of his affluence. And so he has absolutely no idea what he could possibly need to do, what could possibly be incomplete or imperfect about him. And he says to Jesus, kind of in a shocked and awe sort of way, what, what could I possibly lack? And so Jesus tells him in verse 21, it says uh, that Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect or you want to be complete, he says, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Now appreciate here when he says, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. This man, as a faithful religious observer, was already giving to the poor. He was already engaged in a certain amount of charitable activity according to the expectations that he understood God had for him. Jesus wasn't telling him to be charitable and consider the poor. Jesus was telling him literally to become poor and was literally telling him to give up all of his wealth and affluence to, in that sense, experientially identify with the poor. Jesus was saying to lay aside everything that he'd built his life around, everything that he'd accrued, and more importantly, everything that he understood was the, the, the experience of God's blessing. He's telling him to lay that aside. Basically, Jesus, Jesus is getting him to lay down everything that he understood was a blessing from God in order to experience a life that God blessed. Just a radical idea. Blew this guy's mind so much though that it says in verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. When he heard it, he went away sad. Literally, the Greek term is grieving. He grieved. If you've ever grieved before, you know that the, the grief sequence of, you know, shock, denial, anger, you know, all, all kinds of cycles that are going through this man because he, he cannot believe what he's just heard, that there's actually something that he needs to do. And what he needs to do is surrender everything that he understood was the blessing of God in order to experience this life that Jesus says God blesses. And the story doesn't get into the detail of what's going on in the man's head or heart, but the bottom line is that he just couldn't do it. He was so shocked. And the shocking part, the real shocking part, isn't that he walked away. It's that Jesus didn't change the terms once he did. Look at what it says in verse 23. It says, then Jesus said to his disciples, as this rich young ruler is walking away, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, kind of repeating what he's saying, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
See, in this series, in this section of texts that Matthew is telling, you know, stories of episodes of people approaching Jesus, Matthew is presenting, you know, people who society views in a certain light and gets people to look at them differently according to the economy of the way that this life Jesus invites people into, this kingdom of God, works. And today what he's getting to us to look at and consider is the dynamic of economic prosperity and the kind of disparity that exists among people and to get us to view that from the perspective of God's kingdom. And I don't know about you, but you know, I think about around here, you know, it's not that we kind of worship people who have a lot of money. You know, in some church traditions, there are like parking spaces where, you know, your highest donors can, can park. It's sort of exclusive to them. Or you've got plaques on the back of pews or chairs or on walls that kind of indicate, you know, who the really important people are because they're the ones with the money and have contributed the money to what God is doing around here. We, we certainly don't do that in, in, in our context, but... But I do think that there's a degree to which economic disparity still kind of catches us, isn't there? You know, we respect people with money to a greater degree, don't we? We give them a greater degree of attention. We want to spend more time with them and be around them and be, be known by them, don't we? You know, we, we, we listen differently to people with money. We, we, we give them attention. We, we allow their voice to have greater influence. Their opinion matters more than people who lack money. The affluent carry a different weight, a different influence, a different status than those who find themselves in poverty. And even though it might not be totally overt and extreme, it's still, it's still real even in our day and age. Maybe especially in a, an affluent you know, Western culture like ours is in the 21st century. And what Jesus is saying to this rich young ruler is really twofold. First of all, he's, he's trying to get at the barrier in his life to his fullness of devotion. He looks into his heart and can see that, you know, the holding on to these assets is something that's restricting him from fully following Jesus. And so he speaks into it, tells him to relinquish it. But more importantly, what he's trying to do is to get him to relinquish all of that wealth so that he can create a, a certain economic equality. So that he can bridge the gap between the haves and the have-nots and create a, a, a oneness and a unity and an equality. See, this man had experienced charity in his life already. But charity, we've learned around here, is very different than mutuality. Mutuality happens when there's reciprocity, when there's equality, when people are giving and receiving from one another. Charity, on the other hand, is when people of economic advantage or people in power and privilege spread some of that pixie dust of that power and privilege on those who don't have it in kind of a temporary short-term way. And charity might be nice at first, but what charity doesn't do is change the power and privilege gap. Charity retains the dynamic of haves and have-nots and just gives some from the haves to the have-nots. It doesn't create the kind of equality and unity that Jesus envisions. Jesus envisions a kingdom where everyone is one, where the lines of disparity are blurred. And even from an economic perspective, he hopes that those lines can be blurred and that people can function as one family, as one people, not as a group of haves and have-nots. 
And so to us today, in the same way that Matthew intended for his original hearers, as Jesus and his disciples debrief this experience with the rich young ruler, there are two practical takeaways for us today. The first is to just adjust our mindsets around the value of money and possessions and wealth in the same way that Jesus was trying to do with the rich young ruler. In verse 25 of Matthew 19, it says, when the disciples heard all of this, they were greatly astonished, <laughs> you think? And they asked Jesus, well, who then can be saved? You know, remember Deuteronomy 28, if this person isn't blessed by God, well, then who is? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. He's not saying with this man, it's impossible. Although the rich young ruler did choose to walk away. Okay, I don't want you to think that, you know, if you have affluence, you are automatically excluded from the kingdom of God. If you drive a Lexus, you can be a Christian. Some people, you know, they'll believe otherwise. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Okay, Jesus is saying two things here. First of all, he's saying that money and wealth and possessions and affluence do complicate things spiritually. They do. They create a different set of pressures and priorities that can be a spiritual distraction. They can become a responsibility of themselves that can become a burden for people to bear in accruing and managing all of that, that wealth. Um, you know, they can kind of create a false sense of self-sustaining, you know, like you're a self-made person. They can become an idol. They can become, you know, something that grips your heart where you're never satisfied. You know, you're always wanting more. And, you know, those are just to name a few. There's a reason, there's a reason that Jesus spent more time on earth teaching and addressing issues of money and possessions and wealth and affluence than any other subject. Because on the one hand, Money is a spiritually complicating thing. It is. The other thing, though, that Jesus is saying here that's, that's probably even more important when he says, with man, this is impossible, but, but with God, you know, all things are possible, is that he's trying to get to the heart of what the good news of God represented through him actually means and how it actually works. We've said in this context many times that the message of Jesus is something that we experience as followers of him, uh, uh, as followers of his, by grace through faith. That's the language that we use, by grace through faith. That means that the life God makes available to us, no matter who we are or what we've done, is fundamentally a gift. It's not something that we can earn. It's not something in our fallenness or brokenness that we deserve. It's an unmerited gift from God. That's what it means by grace. We just receive that gift in faith by trusting in the work that Jesus does. Well, if you stop and think about it, the people who have the most difficult time many times in understanding the concept of grace are the very people who have become the best at earning things. And one of the issues that makes it difficult for wealth and affluence and, and possessions, you know, people who have all of that to enter and experience the life God has for them is that they become so good and so versed at earning things that they actually don't understand an economy where things aren't earned. And yet what Jesus is saying when he says, with man, this is impossible, with, only with God things are possible, is that to experience a life with God is only the product of the saving work of Jesus. His sinless life, his sacrificial death, his miraculous resurrection that we get to experience as a gift in faith, 
It's fundamentally something that cannot be earned. And the mentality and the attitude and the gears of earning things can actually get in the way. So the quick check-in for us today is, you know, where's your mindset on wealth and money and affluence? You know, do you view that still in kind of a Deuteronomy 28 way where you assume that those things are blessings from God? Or do you understand that, you know, those might be provisions from God, but they can be temptations and distractions from the life that God blesses. And they may actually be required, you know, of you to relinquish, to give away in a life of surrender and sacrifice. You know, not as something that earns you a life with God, but something that represents a response to the life with God, which is the other point that, that Jesus is making here. That the life of devotion is a life of response to his grace, not a condition of it. Verse 27, uh, the passage closes this way. It says, Peter answered Jesus, you know, we've left everything to follow you, which was a true statement, not an exaggeration. He says, what then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And his point here, not in a way that earns you that life with God, but in a way that expresses that reality is that God's not looking for people with thick pocketbooks. He's not looking for people with great resumes, people who've achieved a lot or have a lot of wealth or affluence or possessions. Or... He's not looking for people who have great retirement plans or you know, portfolios. He's looking for people of surrender. He's looking for people who respond to his invitation and the grace that he makes available through Jesus Christ to follow him through full surrender what we call full devotion. It's full stewardship of investing your life in his purposes, full surrender and full sacrifice. And he wants that not just because he wants the fullness of our hearts, but because of the kind of community that that can produce. One where uh, former Compassion President Wes Stafford described as a life of people who have more than enough, actively pursuing living closer to enough so that those who don't have enough can progressively experience a life of enough. Jesus invites people into a life of full devotion, of stewardship, of sacrifice and surrender so that we can all have enough, so that the lines of status and disparity can be blurred and that we can experience the practical and relational wonder of family and unity and harmony together. So check in number two, just kind of asks, where's your Where's your devotion at these days? Particularly when it comes to the economy of your life. You know, are you actively living as a, a professed follower of Jesus? Are you actively living at a standard that is starkly lower than what you could otherwise be living at if you weren't purposing to follow Jesus? You know, would others look at your life and say that, you know, you have voluntarily lived at a lower standard of living and more importantly, so that it can upgrade the standard of other people? You know, are, are, you, are you trading in that 
sort of blessed life in order to experience the quality of life that God blesses? And is there a marked difference in your standard of living and a marked difference in the standard of others because of the way that you're pursuing enough in order to elevate other people's value of enough? You know, in a lot of ways, uh, the passage today is real simple. Real simple, but real hard. Real hard because we find ourselves in a society kind of defined these days, 21st century Western culture, by consumerism, by materialism, by, by so many transactions. You think about it, you grow up that way as a little kid. You know, you're so eager just to get to the corner store to go buy candy and make your first transactions. Later on, you grow up and you start saving and, you know, you have more transactions for electronics or clothes or, you know, the coolest sneakers or whatever. And then as you grow older, the transactions only grow from there. You know, college and weddings and cars and houses and, you know, on and on it goes. It just snowballs from there. And our life is just a series of transactions, it seems. When in reality, Jesus is inviting us in to one single transaction. His life for ours. His life given up to death on the cross for the sin of you and me, risen again to empower us to a new way of life in exchange for our devotion, our stewardship, our sacrifice, and our surrender. The cool part is when we can get there, we can appreciate what Jesus invites us into and respond with that kind of fullness of devotion, you know, two things happen. You know, first of all, we start to actually taste and experience the true life that God blesses, not just in the next life, but in the here and now. We start to experience the adventure and peace and contentment and significance and difference-making and value we can add to others and just, just the joy of the life that God blesses, different than the blessings that we might define in our society, for sure. But we start to unlock the key to the life that God blesses and experience it for ourselves. And then, on top of that, when every single one of us starts to do that, and we start to do that together, to trade in that societally blessed life for a life of devotion, of sacrifice, of stewardship, and of surrender, when we all start to do that, we don't just start to experience the life that God blesses. We start to experience the lines blurred, the classes close, the haves and have-nots become one. And we start to experience the wonder of family, of reciprocity, of mutuality, of unity, and of oneness that Jesus prayed for and gave his life to create. So the question today, while maybe hard, is actually real simple. Will you and I and us together respond to the fullness with which Jesus gave his life to us by giving our fullness of devotion back to him. Knowing that he's already done his part. He's just wondering whether we'll do ours. And just so we're clear, he's not gonna change the terms anytime soon. He didn't then, he won't now. Will you and I and us together give our fullest devotion? Or at the very least, will we take one step today towards giving him more of the fullest of our devotion? And will, be, will we be willing, maybe finally, to trade in the life that society, society says is blessed in order to experience the true life that God blesses? Let's pray together.
Well, God, thanks again for the clarity and the power of your word and the way that it can just rock us right where we're at. We know that it's hard to respond. We confess to you the grip that money and possessions and stability and security and all that status and identity can have in our lives and in our hearts. But we pray right now in response to all that you've done for us that we would open ourselves to you in a fresh and full way. Give us the courage to trust you. Give us the courage to invest our one and only life in you. To steward our lives and our resources that way. Give us the courage to to sacrifice, not out of charity, but out of reciprocity to create a unity and harmony among us. And give us the courage to fully surrender. And help us when we find you faithful, as we devote ourselves to you, help us to be quick to give you all the credit and all the glory that you deserve. But God, give us that courage right here, right now, to be people who will devote ourselves fully to you in full stewardship, full sacrifice, and full surrender. For Jesus' sake, we pray these things. Amen.